I want to start tonight by asking you a question. And you can respond to this question by just simply raising your hand. And the question is this, and I need you to be honest too. How many of you have ever started a project but have failed to complete it? We're in good company. Okay, I want to direct your attention to the screen because here's a couple of projects that were started but still remain unfinished. They're, they're unfinished masterpieces, if you will. This first uh, it, project, it, it looks finished. It's, it's a hotel in uh, North Korea, and I'm probably going to butcher the name, but I think it's pronounced the Ryu Gyeong Hotel in North Korea. And, and construction started in 1987 on this building, and it lasted until about 1993 when the funds ran out, and then it, it just kind of sat there from 1993 to 2008, and then a new company came in, and they, they started building, and they put all the glass paneling on there, and they made it look complete, but the inside is still unfinished, and this building stands 105 stories tall, and it's in the Guinness Book of World Records as the tallest building that is uninhabited. And it's, it's kind of an embarrassing point for North Korea because if you Google this, this building, it's actually been dubbed the Hotel of Doom. And critics and other architects have said that it's the worst building ever built in history. I mean, that's really embarrassing. And I read that the foundation, there was all sorts of problems with the foundation. And one of the elevator shafts, it's supposed to be straight up and down. It's actually kind of like this. And they had to go back in and, and rework it so to bring it up to code. But to this day, it still remains unfinished. And this next one is a little bit closer to home. You guys uh, should know this one, Mount Rushmore. And I never knew this growing up. Maybe they didn't tell me in school. But th- it's actually technically incomplete because construction started on this in 1927. And it was a father and son team. They were the, the lead sculptors. It was Gutsan Borglum and his son Lincoln. And they, they chiseled away at, at this rock face in South Dakota from 1927 to 1941. And it was in 1941 that Gutsen passed away. And uh, by that time, they'd pretty much run out of funds. So they told his son Lincoln, uh, just put the finishing touches on it and we're going to call it good enough. This was the gist of it. And, and that's what he did. So in uh, October 31st, 1941, they had a dedication ceremony. And you can notice how unfinished it is. Lincoln and still has some work to be done on the side of his face. And each of these presidents was supposed to be depicted from the top of their head to their waist. But you can see that didn't happen. So it's still unfinished. And I'm probably going to offend some people maybe by this next statement. And I know I'm going to lose a lot of respect and lose some man points for admitting this. But about a year ago, my wife introduced me to a pretty cool website that I've come to love. And I know some of you guys love this one too. It's called Pinterest. And yeah, woo, right? Uh, you know, it really bothered me that people used to start conversations with, so I saw this thing on Pinterest, and now I'm the person that starts those conversations. I saw this thing on Pinterest the other day, and Pinterest is going to be the death of me, because why I love it so much is I really love woodworking. It's one of my hobbies, and I love to create things, and I love to build furniture, and I'll, I'll go on Pinterest, and I'll spend hours looking at all these really cool things that people have made, and it's like, I, I want to make that. 
So I go out to my shop and I start building, but then, you know, I have to do homework or something else comes up and, I don't know, I get too busy, I lose interest, it becomes too difficult. And before I know it, I have all of these unfinished projects laying around my house. Katie can attest to that. You can talk to her. I I get really excited and then all of a sudden it's like three years later, um, yeah, it's still unfinished. And maybe you've experienced something like that to a greater or lesser degree. We see these unfinished pieces or areas of our lives. We, we see it in those half-read books that have sat on our nightstand for months or years. We see that in our New Year's resolutions. Remember that diet that you committed to a few months ago that lasted about three days? Yeah, we see it in New Year's resolutions. We see it in uh, unkept promises. We see it on a deeper level in broken marriages, abandoned children, undiscipled believers, and ultimately an unevangelized world. I mean, the, the truth is humans have a tendency to stop before we get to the finish line. When things get hard, we would rather give up. And I know I'm guilty of that. And from the hands that went up in the air, you guys are guilty of that too. But praise God that every single time he starts something, he is faithful to complete it. And the text that we're going to look at tonight, we're going to travel back in time to the night when God completed a project, and it was that salvation project. So we're going to be in John chapter 19. If you guys want to flip there, you can now. It's going to be just a second before we read it, because I'm sure most of you are familiar with the life of Jesus. You're, you're up to speed on what happened, but in case you're not, I want to uh, really quickly just, just give you the cliff note version of Jesus and his ministry. We know that uh, his ministry really took off about the age of 30 for him. And for about the next three years, he went around Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. He casted out demons. He uh, gave sight to the blind. He healed the lame. He was discipling his followers. He was confronting false teachers, all the while proclaiming the kingdom of God, the repentance of sin, and this new eternal life that can be found in him. And then we get up to the last week of his life, and we call that Passion Week or Holy Week. And it was this past Sunday that we celebrated Palm Sunday with the kids up here on stage. And we know that it was on Palm Sunday that Jesus had that triumphal entry into Jerusalem where the crowds were waving those palm branches and laying down their coats and paying homage to Jesus and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And then it was on Monday of the last week of his life that he entered the temple and turned the tables and and ridded the temple of the Money lenders, and then it was Tuesday and Wednesday that he did some teaching and preaching. And then we get to Thursday, and it was on Thursday that he shared his last meal with his followers. It was on Thursday that he washed their feet, that he went to the garden to pray, and it was on Thursday that he was betrayed by one of his own. And then it was Friday when he was taken into court and tried and then beaten. And then nailed to a cross. And that's where our text picks up tonight with Jesus on the cross. But before we actually read it, I want to give you the application for tonight. This is, this is what you can do with what we're going to be reading. It's to reflect and to worship. It's really simple. Reflect and worship. Because if you're anything like me and if you've been in the church for any number of years. You might not admit this, you might not say it, but you've probably experienced it. 
And you've probably thought to yourself, maybe around Christmas or around Easter time, here we go again. Heard that story. Again, it's something we don't like to admit, but we've probably all experienced it. Come Christmas, we say, yeah, Jesus, born in a manger. Yeah, I know. And then it's Good Friday, and we say, Jesus died on a cross. Yeah, I know. And then Easter, Jesus raised from the dead. Yeah, I know. I get that. I've heard it. I even talked with a person this past week who said, I'm not going to go to a Good Friday service because I, I know the story. I mean, at least they were bold enough to admit it. I know I've felt that before. And, and we have a tendency when we hear these stories over and over again to they kind of grow cold and we become immune to them and we become apathetic and it's just like, eh, not a big deal when really it is the biggest deal in all of history. So I pray that tonight God would not find our hearts in that place of apathy I pray that that we would be able to reflect on the events that happened on this night some 2,000 years ago and that we would worship God for what he did on our behalf. So we'll pick up here, John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. It's going to be in your bulletin or on the slide if you don't have your Bible with you. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scriptures... I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Tonight I want to focus on those three words. It is finished. Now, I'm not a Greek expert, so John, maybe you can correct me in this. Um, I'm actually still in college, and I'm still trying to understand the English language, so I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like I know what I'm talking about. But to the best of my ability, I'm going to try to pronounce this word. If I butcher it, correct me afterwards. Jesus is on the cross, and one of his last words that he says is tetelestai. And in the English, we translate that into three words. It is finished. It says, tetelestai. Now, in Jesus' day, this was a word that would have been used by a servant. A master would have given his servant a task to do. And when that task was complete, the servant would say, tetelestai, master, it is done. I, I did what you asked me to do, and there's nothing left to do. An artist would have used this word at the completion of their project. At the end of the painting or at the end of the sculpture, the artist would say, tetelestai, All the strokes have been made. All the chiseling has been done. It is finished. There's nothing left to do. This word has actually been found on ancient bills that have, it's been stamped on or written across ancient bills. It says, tetelestai. And it means that that bill was paid in full. That the merchant received all that was due and that there was nothing left to be paid. And I really like this word because I'm going to use it in three and a half weeks. Because in three and a half weeks, I'm going to turn in my last paper to complete my studies at Moody Bible Institute. And I promise you, when, when I click send on that day, I'm going to lift my hand and I'm going to say, Tetelestai, it is finished. All the papers have been written. All the books have been read. The tuition has been paid for. There's nothing left for me to do. Send me my diploma. It is finished. And I'm going to rejoice. <laughs> Thank you. 
Awesome. So it's, it's weird, though, if you, if you really think about it, because Jesus is on the cross, and one of the last words that he says is to telestai. It is finished. I mean, put yourself at the foot of the cross on that night. That doesn't make sense. It is finished, Jesus? What are you talking about? I would totally understand if he said, I am finished. Like, hey, I'm done. I'm dying. This is it. But he said, it is finished. It has been paid for. Jesus, what does that mean? I mean, it begs the question, Jesus, what are you talking about? What does it mean? What was finished? And that's what we're going to look at tonight, because as Christians, we have a tendency, you know, we have the Bible, we know the answer, so we have the tendency to jump to the conclusion without really reflecting on, without really looking back on or worshiping God for what He accomplished on that night. So tonight, let's travel back in time. Let's, let's go back before, before there was even the world. We know that God exists eternally. Now, eternity is something that just boggles the mind, so don't fixate too much on eternity. You're not going to understand it. But God has always existed, and God always will exist. Before you were created, before I was created, before the world was created, there was God. And we know that God exists in three distinct persons, as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it's one God. We call it the Trinity. And God, in complete unison, as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, said... I want to create. I want to create. And he says, you know what? I'm going, to, I'm going to create a universe. And in this universe, I'm going to fill it full of galaxies. And I'm going to fill these galaxies full of stars and moons and planets and asteroids and all sorts of really cool stuff. And, and it's all going to point back to me and my glory and my majesty so I'm going to create. And, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to create a perfect planet that can sustain life. And I'm going to take that planet and I'm going to put it in the perfect position in a specific galaxy. See, I'm going to put it close enough to the perfect size sun so that it won't freeze or fry. And then I'm going to take that world, and, and here's the crazy part, I'm going to, I'm going to tilt it at just the right angle, and I'm going to make it spin, and it'll be able to sustain life. But I'm going to do it in such a way that the people on this planet aren't going to feel like they're riding the the Tilt-A-Whirl at the carnival or the teacups at Disneyland. I mean, stop and think about that for a second. Who, before walking into this room and hearing that, thought to themselves, I'm on this gigantic ball that's tilted and spinning. Isn't that crazy? I mean, don't we serve an awesome God that deserves to be worshipped? It's absolutely amazing. And then, and then God goes on in this, in this plan. He says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill this world with, with fish and all sorts of plants and animals. But the coolest thing that I'm going to create is going to be humans. And I'm going to create them in my image so that they can be in a relationship with me. But you see, God is omniscient. That simply means that God knows everything. God knew that there was going to be a problem. But he didn't stop his plan. He didn't say, oh, no nope, problem. Not going to go through with that. God created this. Or he, he decided, you know, I'm still going to create it. I'm going to work through the problem that these humans are going to cause. And I, I'm going I'm to make a rescue plan 
for them. Because you see, God knew that when given the choice, we would choose life over death. When given the choice, we would choose ourselves over God. And God knew that when we would make that choice, there would be absolutely nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to restore or to fix the problem that we would create. And God didn't have to create us, but He chose to. And it's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that we see some of the most beautiful, beautiful words in all of Scripture. You guys probably know it well. In the beginning, God created. I mean, think about that for a second. God knew what it would cost Him to create. He knew the problems that would arise. But despite that, God created. It's absolutely amazing. And then he goes through his creation account in Genesis 1, and uh, he separates the light from the darkness, and he separates the land from the water, and he inhabits the earth with all sorts of animals and creatures. And then on day 6, he gets to the pinnacle of his creation, where he creates man and woman in his image. And then he goes on and he gives them instructions. And he says, look, you guys, you have all of this. This is all yours. Eat freely of all the fruit. Eat until your bellies are full, until your heart is content. You can have whatever you want. But there's just one tree that I don't want you to eat from. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because if you eat from that tree, you're going to die. And people always say, well, why was there even a tree? Why did God put a tree in there? I don't understand. Well, for love to be genuine, a choice has to be made. If Adam and Eve couldn't make the choice, then they would basically be robots living in a world where love was forced on them. But they had to make the choice. Am I going to choose God or am I going to choose self? God laid out the instructions. And then some time passes, and we aren't really sure how long exactly, but Satan enters the picture. And he approaches Eve, and, and he, he, remember, he's a deceiver, he's a, he's a liar, he's a thug. And he approaches Eve and he says, Hey, Eve, um, did God really say you can't eat any of this? And then Eve makes a mistake and she enters into a conversation with Satan. She says, Well, no, actually not really. God says we can eat of this. We just can't eat of this one tree because if we eat of this one tree, he said that we'll die. And then this bold-faced lie straight from the pits of hell comes from this serpent's mouth and he says, Surely you will not die? Eve, are you serious? If you eat of this fruit, you're actually going to become more like God. And all of a sudden, it starts to look good in Eve's eyes. She looks at it. You know, maybe, maybe God's holding something back from me. Maybe it wouldn't hurt if I ate of this. So in a moment of selfishness, she reaches out, grabs that fruit, and takes a bite and hands it to her husband, and he does the same. And in that moment, they plunge all of humanity into a state of sin. You see, they served, Adam and Eve served as representatives for you and I. And their sin is inherited by us. I mean, the same way that you inherit your eye color, your skin color, your bone structure from your parents... We inherit their sin. God said, the consequence for for sin is is death. There's a problem now. 
God created us to be in a relationship with Him, but sin entered the picture and now we're separated. And God knew that there was nothing that we can do to fix that problem. People say, but God is love. Can't, can't He just, can just kind of overlook it? Well, no. Because yes, God is love, but God is also just. And if God is just, He can't let sin go unpunished. Otherwise, He's not God. Otherwise, He's nothing, really. So He has to punish sin. God knew that, that we would start this problem and that there would be absolutely nothing that we could do to save ourselves. So despite the problem that we created, God says, I'm going to fix that. And it's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that we see this first kind of puzzle piece, if you will, of God's project, God's rescue plan. It's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that God says to the serpent, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. If you want the theological kind of nerdy term for this, it's the proto-evangelium. It's the first proclamation of the gospel that God gives that, hey, there is coming a day when... Satan, your head will be bruised by the seed of the woman. And it's from the seed of the woman that Abraham is going to come. And Abraham is going to give birth to Israel, the the nation that is going to be the the light to all other nations. And it's from Israel that the Messiah will be born. It's the first proclamation of the gospel that God says, there is coming a a Savior. There's there's coming a a fixer-upper, if you will, to this problem that is now created. We have to fast forward now. We're going to go through a lot of history in a short amount of time. We have to kind of fast forward from Genesis to Exodus. And we're going to be in Exodus chapter 12. It'll pop up here on the screen in just a second. But most of you guys are familiar with the ten plagues, the story of the ten plagues. And it's in this tenth and final plague that we really see this beautiful picture of what Jesus would do for us. Because, remember, the the Israelites were enslaved for a really long time, and and God calls Moses to set his people free, and it's now the tenth and final plague, and God tells Moses, get the people ready, because uh, you're going to have to get out of there really quick. And what I want you to do is to go and find a a perfect lamb, lamb without uh, any spots, without any blemishes, find that perfect lamb and kill it. And then God gives these instructions in Exodus chapter 12, verse 21 through 27. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select, select for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians 
but spared our house. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. We see this second piece of the puzzle kind of put into place here as, as we see this foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. And it sounds really crazy if you think about it. Kill a lamb, take a plant, and, and use it to kind of put some blood on a doorpost. But those who trusted in God and, and those who did just that, they were spared that night. They were protected by the blood of the lamb. And it was 2,000 years ago that Jesus served as the perfect lamb. And it was 2,000 years ago that he shed his blood. And for us today that trust God, trust in him, and put our faith in him, is now his blood that covers us. I know it sounds crazy and it doesn't make much sense, but according to Scripture, it's true. And we see this beautiful picture of what Jesus would do for us if we put our faith and our trust in him. We have to fast forward again. Now we get to the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's in these books that we really see the, the rules and the regulations for, for these sacrifices put into place. And God says, look, for your sacrifice to, to be pleasing to me, you gotta, you got to follow these rules. Now, when I first became a believer, I, I was like, God, why are you so obsessed with blood and sacrifice and killing and stuff? And this is kind of weird, right? But we have, to, we have to go back to Genesis and we have to remember that the punishment for our sin is death. That's the only way that, that God can be satisfied is with death. We can't pay enough money. We can't just be good enough. We can't even love enough. It has to be a death. And I want to call your attention to a pretty uh, important verse here that, that kind of speaks about this. It's in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. Scriptures say, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And this is, you know, it's talking about the atonement. So what is that? You know, it's not, a, it's not a word that we really use today. What does atonement mean? Well, atonement, it's, it's really the central message of the Bible, because when you make atonement with somebody, you make amends with somebody. When you make atonement with somebody, you satisfy the person that you've wronged to the point where you can enter into a right relationship with them. That's what atonement is in, in, is in a nutshell. It's, it's satisfying the person that you've wronged. We've wronged God. And the only way to satisfy Him is through a sacrifice. And we know from Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or no, no forgiveness of sin. I mean, go back to Genesis, and we know that we were created to be in a perfect relationship with God, but when we sinned, when sin entered the picture, that was the problem, that was the issue that kept us from God. And according to these passages, for God to be satisfied, the shedding of blood has to happen. Because it's through the shedding of blood that sin is removed. For us to enter back into that relationship, that sin has to be gone. That is why a sacrifice has to be made. That is why Jesus had to die on that cross. He couldn't have just been good enough. He had to shed his blood. Yes, Jesus was perfect. But it had to end in a sacrifice. Now I want to fast forward again 
to the life of Christ and read to you just some passages really quick about why Jesus said, why he said he came to this world. These are just a few passages. I think they're up on the screen for you guys. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Then he said in Luke 9.22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to make the sick well. He came to call the sinners to repentance. And he knew that he would have to suffer and die. And we get back to the cross. And it's at the cross that we see Jesus now hanging from there. And he knew, man, I fulfilled the law perfectly. He knew I've called the sinners to repentance, And he, he knew I, I came to heal the sick, and, and I did that. And he knew, I'm going to suffer. And it's, it's on the cross that we pick up at his suffering. And you can imagine Jesus hanging there. He's, he's been there for about six hours now, from 9 o'clock to about 3 o'clock. And there's this strange darkness over the land. And his dry, parched throat and his chapped lips are barely able to utter these words of, I thirst. But they're just loud enough that, that the guard hears them and, and he picks up a, a hyssop branch. And if we go back to Exodus, you know, we serve a really detail-oriented God, a very creative God. And, and don't forget that it was a, a hyssop plant that was used to spread the blood of the lamb back in Exodus. And here we see the same hyssop plant now used to hoist a sponge full of sour wine up to the lips of God. Jesus takes a quick sip, just enough to moisten his throat to exclaim, To Telestai, it is finished. It's paid for. It's at the cross that the last piece of the puzzle was put into place. And that we can now kind of step back and say, It is finished. It is complete. It is paid for. What, what God, what, what you started in Genesis 3 is, is now complete. The plan of salvation isn't like that hotel that remains incomplete or, or like Mount Rushmore or like those Pinterest projects that I have at my house. The plan of salvation is complete. And Jesus completed it on the cross was 2,000 years ago. And when you think about it, it, it's pretty crazy because the wrath that should have been poured out on me and the wrath that should have been poured out on you for the mistakes that we've made, they were poured out on God. They were poured out on Jesus. He said, it is finished. And the separation that you should have felt and the separation that I should have felt was experienced by Jesus. He said, it is finished. And the blood that should have come out of my body and come out of yours came out of Jesus's. He said, it is finished. The death that you should have died and the death that I should have died and the penalty that we should have paid for our mistakes was paid by Jesus. And it's at the cross where he says it is finished and it is paid in full and there is nothing left to do. 
Think about this just for a second. Jesus never sinned. He lived a perfect life. So, so think about this. He never knew what it felt like to be guilty of sin. He had never experienced that guilt or that shame or that fear. Kind of think back on your life to the last time maybe somebody caught you in a lie or the last time you sinned. And, and you know, as we sin more and more, we kind of become immune to it in one sense. But think back to the time maybe you were young and, and you got caught in a sin and you felt that shame and you felt that guilt. That was something that Jesus had never experienced before. But it was at the cross when God poured all the sins of the world on him that he felt that. And we wonder why he sweat drops of blood when he was praying the night before. It's absolutely amazing. Because the affair that you've had, whether it was physical or, or, or mental, that was charged against Jesus. And the lies that you've spoken and the lies that I've spoken, that was charged against Jesus, although he never lied. And the gossip that is poured out of your mouth and that pours out of my mouth, that was charged against Jesus. The bad decisions that we've made, those are charged against Jesus. Now, I was, I was deeply convicted this past week when I was studying through this, and it's like, how could, I ever, how could I ever grow cold to this? How could I ever grow immune to this? How could I ever just say, eh, it's another Good Friday service? I mean, when you, when you stop and you think about it, it's amazing what God did for us. It's, I can't even really describe it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I tried to find a way to, to put it into words, and I, and I just couldn't because when you really think about it, I mean, it's indescribable, the love that he has for us. And you try to describe it, and you just, I can't because I don't deserve it. It should have been me on the cross. That crown of thorns should have been pushed into my skull. Those whips that he, that he took, it should have been me because I was the one that made the mistake. God, why, why would you leave heaven to come to earth to, to right my wrongs when I don't deserve it? I, I think this passage sums it up the best from 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And you think about that. God made God to be sin so that we could become righteous. It's absolutely unbelievable what Jesus did for us. And we call it, we call it a scandalous message. It doesn't make sense to us. It's, it's offensive because we talk about this idea of grace. You say, God, I don't deserve it. But he freely gives it. And all we have to do is put our faith and our trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross. And I don't know your hearts. Maybe everybody here is a believer. I don't know. But God knows. And I want to give you a chance to respond to this good news. Because, you know, today we, we, we kind of reflect on what Jesus did for us, his, his death on the cross. But in a couple days, we're going to celebrate his resurrection. And it's his resurrection that really validates everything that he did in his life and in his death. Today we reflect on Sunday, we're going to celebrate. And maybe God's working in your heart here tonight. 
And I just want to give you the opportunity to respond to the work that Jesus did. Because here's the thing, it's not some fanciful prayer or some magical words. It's a heart issue. You've got to come to God just with a humble heart that says, God, I realize I was the one that made the mistakes. And God, I realize that it was me that should have been up on the cross But Jesus, I trust that you took my punishment. I'm putting my faith in you. I don't want to live for myself anymore. God, I'm sorry for for the sins that I've done, for the sins that I've committed. And and I thank you that that you right my wrong. And God, I I surrender everything over to you. And when you come to him with that kind of humble heart, he says, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. And it's the most beautiful awesome thing that you will ever experience. And, and grace is a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a scandalous message that offends so many because we think we have to earn something. We think we have to work for it. God says, just receive it. There's nothing that you can do because I was the one that paid it in full and I was the one that finished it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your great love that you demonstrated to us at the cross and God we can't make sense of it and it it's it's mind blowing the fact that a god who who owns everything a god who is perfectly holy and righteous and just would would leave heaven to come down here and and live amongst us and and to to live that perfect life that that you required to be in a relationship with you and 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 then to die on a cross and to shed your blood on our behalf so that our sin debt could be paid god we thank you for that father we thank you that when we put our faith in you our lives become hidden in christ so that god when you look at us you no longer see our affairs or our lies or our gossip, but you see the perfect righteousness and holiness of your son, Jesus. That's mind-blowing when we think about that, Lord, and and we are just so grateful for all that you've done for us, Lord. May may we never grow cold of this message. May we never become apathetic from the work that you did for us, Lord. We we stand back tonight and and we look at that completed project that that you completed and that you paid in full, Lord. We, We celebrate that here tonight, Jesus. We love you and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're going to continue in this spirit of reflection and worship by taking communion and Jamie's going to lead us in two songs and during these two songs, kind of on your own time, we have these three stations set up here. You guys can come and take communion as a family, by yourself, as you feel led. And uh, take it at the stations. There's some baskets here that you can put your cups in when you're finished with that. But as believers, uh, we take communion in remembrance of what Jesus did for us. And it was that Thursday night when Jesus shared his last meal with his followers, and, and he, he, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And, and, and we, we take the bread and, and, and we break it and we remember Jesus' body that was broken on our behalf. And it was after dinner that Jesus took the cup. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So tonight I think it's really fitting 
that we take communion together as a, as a church family and, and as we reflect and as we celebrate and we worship a God who did so much for us. May we never forget that it should have been us on that cross and it should have been us with the crown of thorns piercing our eyebrows. It should have been us that was beaten, but it was God. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.